Welcome to another episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This podcast is based on my website and blog. My main goal is to speak about my theater-going experiences in concise summaries without plot spoilers. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other cities. In fact, this month I'm going to cover a production in Glen Arbor, Michigan, where I'm actually recording this podcast from as well. So if you hear a little traffic go by between this porch that I'm sitting on and my beautiful visual of Little Glen Lake, we are on location this month recording this podcast and hitting a local community theater production of The African Queen, which I'll tell you about in a little while. In addition on this month's episode... There'll be two Broadway musicals I'm going to talk about, the ending of the run of Be More Chill and the new hit Beetlejuice, and we'll cover a bunch of off and off-off Broadway productions as well. A goal of my blog and this podcast is to share my love of theater and hopefully inspire you to see a play, a musical, or a theater company that you may not have known about. In today's episode, my 22nd, I am going to share with you my theater visits from the month of August 2019. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com. In addition, you can register to receive regular emails for all new posts as they are added. Now we'll get started. First, we'll conclude our coverage of the New York Musical Festival from last month with the eighth entry covering two new shows and my pick for Best of Fest. The first is a production of the musical My Real Mother. Adoption is the subject matter of the musical My Real Mother. Infant Sarah is adopted by Elena. Alex is the woman who decides to give her child up when her relationship with her boyfriend goes sour. Sarah narrates the tale of her two mothers, often observing the action. The messaging is geared towards pulling the heartstrings. Quote, love grows in a heart, not in a womb. Alex is living with Duncan, who is studying hard and preparing for his career. At the beginning of the story, she gets pregnant and he convinces her to have an abortion. The regret is immediate. She gets pregnant again. This time, however, it's not an accident. Duncan still wants nothing to do with the baby at this time in his life. Elena has two children from a previous bad marriage. She and new husband Jason decide to adopt. In a number with a very fun idea, they consider the right candidate in the song March of the Potentials. Elena and Alex create a strong bond, and during the pregnancy, they go shopping and get their nails done. As you would predict, trouble develops after the baby is born. The interesting aspects of this story are the messy conflicts which develop between these characters. The tension between a birth mother and the adoptive parents. Older children viewing their stepfather critically as he finally has his own child. The boyfriend who has played the fool and tricked into the pregnancy. It's messy stuff and engaging. 
The staging by Misty B. Willis seems like a combination of student assembly presentation and group therapy session. Adopted Sarah is the narrator, but not really a fully fleshed out person. Most of the characters flip-flop in their opinions, which can be true to life as situations change. Here, however, the abrupt shifts sometimes strain credibility during the more sketchily drawn sections. The song Demons between Elena and husband Jason feels forced and incongruous with the rest of this show. My Real Mother ends on a happy note with the song Open. The healing occurs. Open is a mirror you should not use in dim light. Elena Shadow played Elena, and Katie Lamarck played Alex. Thanks to these two very nice, emotionally rich performances of these mothers, this production allows a glimpse into what this show could be with further development. My final musical in the four-week marathon that is NIMF, the New York Musical Festival, was a show called Chance. Gregory is a 50-year-old gay man searching online for a male escort at the beginning of Chance. He is classically obsessed with old Hollywood. His apartment is adorned with homages to the period. A painting of The Lady is his spirit guide. She appears in the flesh singing, Something Cooked Up in Your Mind. What is Gregory cooking up? Lust is the answer. The lady is as real as the boy on his computer screen. The illusions draw you in early, but the creepiness factor is worrisome. Photos of the shirtless escort named Chance are projected. Where is this story going? When Gregory goes to Chance's apartment, the scene is awkward in a good way. What then emerges is a very introspective chamber piece between these three characters. Both men are dealing with demons in their head. Gregory is on a hospital stretcher at the opening of the show. Richard Eisen's book, music, and lyrics will fill us in on those details in a believably melodramatic way. Director Nicholas Minus did a wonderful job setting the locations and transitions. Floor-to-ceiling fabric created space and scene changes, but also allowed for projected imagery. Grant Richards was exceptionally fine as the youthful and damaged Chance. His Land's End song moment was wrought with complexity. The song produced a deep connection to an individual who may have been simply arrogant and superficial. The opening of the second act between Lady and Gregory was the only section of this musical which fell flat. Gregory's Buddhist experience led to some clunky, ill-fitting one-liners, such as, Don't you watch opera? Whereby the lady replies, I adore opera. Tad Williams was a fine Gregory, older, wiser, and still searching for happiness. Terry Lavelle was memorable as the lady, and had the single best costume in the festival, the white dress in Act Two. There were hints at old Hollywood glamour and style, which could be further explored with a lighter touch. This show may work even better as a film, which juxtaposes the visual elegance of melodramas from yesterday 
with the grittiness of gay life today. Chance was definitely a worthwhile atmospheric experience. And now for a discussion of Best of Fest. The audience gets a vote for the Best of Fest for the various different types of musical presentations in Nymph. There is also a committee which presents awards for the best musicals, scores, actors, and creative elements. Here are my picks this year. In the category of readings, The Disappearing Man was a fully realized story about a traveling circus during the Great Depression. The characters were flawed and memorable. With a terrific score, I would love to see a full production where the circus can come to town. This year, Nymph partnered with the Roundabout Theater Company for the Roundabout Writers Group Award, which is an invitation for the writer of a reading, concert, or musical in the festival to join their writers group. The writer of The Disappearing Man, John Sood, won that award this year, so I look forward to seeing where he goes next. It was truly a memorable musical with excellent songs. My choice for best reading of the festival is Kafka's Metamorphosis. This musical presented this famous novella about a salesman turned into a cockroach coupled with an overview of Kafka's life story. The absurdist tone of the author flowed throughout the show. The darkness of his familial relationships were ingeniously made comedic. I sat in an audience that was visibly smiling through the entire performance. For my picks for best production overall, my runner-up is a musical that was called Flying Lessons. This was a delightful show about a young girl and the pressures of growing up. Relationships with her mom, her teachers, and schoolmates were mined for dramatic and comedic effect. A book report assignment anchors this show about discovering what greatness is and how one person can aspire to such an achievement. The characters were memorable, the laughs were frequent, and the lessons were relevant and heartfelt. My selection, however, for best production was Buried. An unusual and deftly conceived piece, this musical explored an emotional relationship between two individuals who feel marginalized on the outskirts of society. That they were serial killers was the quirky angle chosen. The book, which won the Nymph Best Award, was extremely fine, expertly balancing tension with comedy. The music, which also won for best score, had gorgeous melodies and was often haunting. The cast from the University of Sheffield showed the heights that can be reached with an exceptionally talented ensemble. The show is great. I look forward to seeing it produced elsewhere. Both Flying Lessons and Buried were runners-up for the committee's pick for Best Musical, a show called Leaving Eden won, but those two I thought were far and away the best of the fest. If you are interested in reading more about those or listening to more about those, the NYMPH coverage from July of 2019 includes virtually all of the shows that were presented and reviews of each of them, as well as the Episode 21 podcast from July 2019's Theater Visits. Now we'll move to Broadway and the very popular and critically maligned Be More Chill. 
I decided to write my review for Be More Chill as a letter as I saw the show within its last two weeks prior to closing. Dear cast and creatives of Be More Chill, I was fortunate enough to see your show last September off-Broadway. It was a thoroughly enjoyable experience, and I blogged about it then. I felt the Broadway transfer might be a little rough, listening to comments from others at the time. When you opened up town, some critics seemed to be not just negative in their opinion, but mean-spirited in their written words. I didn't say bitchy, but you make the call. Three 18-year-old adults were visiting last weekend, so we decided to bring them to your show. I am happy to reconfirm my previous assessment. I would add that the production upgrades were substantial and satisfying. Beowulf bore its scenic design, coupled with Alex Basco Koch's arresting production design, nicely riffed on the all-consuming technology of this generation. Your entire cast did a fine job creating individual personas, unlike much ensemble work for less well-directed musicals, including this past season. The direction by Stephen Brackett and the choreography by Chase Brock were revelatory on second viewing. In my mind, both did Tony-nominated work and were significantly more accomplished than some of those nominees. Fun was abundant in each and every scene. The costume designed by Bobby Frederick Tilly, the second, was an avalanche of goofy delights perfectly suited to the storytelling. I attend a lot of theater and don't have a particular cup of tea. If a creative team wants to tell a young adult story and heap some sci-fi nerdiness on, go for it. If you tell the story well, that's what I'll see and report. Be More Chill is a musical comedy with heart, edge, vim, and vigor. For supporters of the theater, this particular show has the added benefit of bringing in the next generation of audiences. This blog and my related monthly podcast now has an archive of nearly 400 reviews. Thankfully, the internet enables voices other than the major media outlets to express their opinions. Readers can find those writers or bloggers or podcast givers that they personally trust for their advice. None of us will always agree for sure. In fact, many of my friends were not fans of Be More Chill. I still quite can't fathom why, frankly. As for our lead actor, Will Rowland's performance was simply terrific. The part of Jeremy here required as much, if not more, emotional fireworks and nuanced comedic timing as any starring male lead on Broadway this season. Furthermore, Joe Iconis's and Joe Trax's zany show would have been in my top five best musical contenders this year without a doubt. As you all head into your last weekend of performances, I'd like to thank you for an exceptionally fine evening in the theater last week. Each of us had a grand time and the energy in the house was electric. Isn't that what makes live theater so invigorating? Congratulations on your Broadway run. I hope America is a bit more welcoming than New York on what I would expect should be an upcoming national tour. Sincerely, chilled and smiling. Now let's travel together as far from Broadway as we can and go 
to Northern Michigan, the Glen Arbor players, and their production of The African Queen. We noticed a small colored poster plastered on a bulletin board while standing in line to check out at the single supermarket in town. The African Queen was going to be presented at Glen Lake Church during the week we were visiting this beautiful area of up north Michigan. Was this going to be a showing of the famous movie over four nights? The poster hinted otherwise with the co-director credits. The price of admission was free with refreshments provided. Donations appreciated. We circulated the idea of attending this very off, 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 off Broadway event and friends began to get very excited. It turns out they are rabid fans of Waiting for Guffman, that 1996 mockumentary film by Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy spooked a community theater and its quirky amateur performers. Given this blog, my monthly podcast, and those reviews I have written for other online sites, the anticipation escalated. The group hilariously postured that I was the Guffman character, a critic from New York planning to review a local community theater production. We arrived at the church and were warmly greeted. The audience totaled a dozen people. We were four of them. The African Queen is based on the 1951 movie and was performed as a staged reading in two acts with 14 scenes. With scripts in hand, the movie is reenacted with four roles. Rapids were traversed and bullets flew as the adventure unfolded. The entire play felt a bit long, to be honest. The material is so visual that it is quite difficult to conjure up all of the imagery needed to effectively dramatize this adventure. Some scenes probably should have been shortened and others sped up. Janet Stilpichevich was very good as the narrator and could certainly have been utilized to provide more descriptive color. Like nearly all theatrical endeavors, there are positive aspects of this production to celebrate. First, the set design. The African Queen famously is a boat. Here, it was an outline of PVC pipes with a black barrel and painted smokestack placed in the center of the deck. The ship filled the entire stage and was a believable rendition of the boat assembled with little money and winning creativity. My second call-out is for the sound design by lead actor Ron Smith. This play utilizes sound effects from the movie frequently throughout the performance. Water rushing, bullets flying, and the musical soundtrack are heard. I have to say that I was impressed by how accurately that was incorporated into the play. The timing was spot on. I've seen plenty of shows with much greater budgets and significantly higher ticket prices not achieve this level of accuracy. Last, but not least, are the actors playing Charlie Allnut and Rose Sayer. Katherine Hepburn famously played Rose, and Janice Ross shows us some of her prickliness. An early scene in Act 2, where the two were arguing, was the best one of the show. Humphrey Bogart won an Oscar for portraying Mr. Allnut. 
Ron Smith was quite entertaining as this larger-than-life character. The drinking scene that ends with him passing out on the deck was a high point. Slightly older actors take a few extra seconds to collapse into a drunken slumber. The slow-motion effect was very fun indeed. The two leads were also the co-directors of this play. At the beginning of the performance, Mr. Smith explained that his cousin suggested the African Queen for their next production. Both were lifelong vacationers to this picturesque locale of natural beauty. His cousin is now suffering from Parkinson's disease along with serious dementia. The moment was touching and nicely expressed the feeling of community that this small troupe works hard to nurture. One friend was chatting with a woman at the reception table who told us she will be directing a show later this year. He volunteered to try out and received an email the next day about auditions for the October run of the long, hot September. Whether he will summon the nerve and put on the grease paint remains to be seen. He did say privately, however, that he will not do any nude scenes. The Glen Arbor Players are a small community theater creating their own brand of magic in a very, very small town. Guffman was happy to make an appearance and support their mission. From very up north, off, 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 off Broadway and out of town, we go back to New York to the Rave Theater Festival and the play Waiting for Johnny Depp. Rita Donatella is a struggling wannabe actress working in a science lab and donning the white coat. She's analyzing feces inside a rat and declares, I'm not loving that. Her agent calls and her dreams are finally realized. She's going to star in a movie with an A-list actor. Waiting for Johnny Depp is a semi-autobiographical musical comedy chronicling the perilous world of self-absorption and career angst. Janet Cole Valdez and Dee Dee O'Malley wrote the book and lyrics with Betty Ross collaborating with them on the score. At the start of the show, they inform us that the events may seem increasingly preposterous, but that they are true. The adventure presented is a rags-to-riches-to-rags tale of an actor's quest to land the role of a lifetime. Rita is a plucky young woman who leaps before she looks. Thrilled that she booked the film, Rita quits her jobs and sings the song, Kiss My Ass. Uh-oh, there's not a contract yet. Egads, there's a change in the film's direction. Oh no, there's another twist contemplated for her character. Meanwhile, her big $2,000 savings account is evaporating. The trials and tribulations are a familiar jumble of Hollywood expectations for females. When told she needs to lose 20 pounds, Reader dives into Zumba and then informs us that I'm injecting a pregnant woman's pee. Donna Vivino creates a strong impression early on as Rita banters with the audience in this one-woman show. Frequently breaking the fourth wall was a smart choice. The candy scene was especially funny and gave the impression of a friend recreating and embellishing her personal journey for our entertainment and bemusement. 
things continue to head south for poor Rita. Lose the New York accent. What are they talking about? More complications and adjustments. Thin morphs to voluptuous. A very feminine role becomes masculine. Driven Rita will do anything for my craft. What about money? Craigslist is a song which spells out a solution. One young man who answers an ad to buy her stuff falls for her. Flowers from Phoenix is the singular musical high point of this score. The clowning briefly pauses and a touching glimpse inside Rita's emotional core emerges. As the show progresses, the initial lunacy starts to wear thin. Scenes such as the one with the Barbie doll might be conceptually amusing, but they slow the story's momentum. This solo performance is a marathon of costume and personality changes. Ms. Vivino is a game performer and keeps our interest throughout, even when the material loses steam. She has quite a few cell phone conversations, some of them with recorded vocals. Many are with her kvetching mother, who has typical yet still funny lines. This musical might benefit with the addition of a second performer physically playing her mother, the agent, the boyfriend, and so on. The part could add hilarious camp to these silly, largely lightweight reminiscences. Even Johnny Depp could be impersonated to great effect. Near the end of the play, there is a trauma and Rita will learn lessons about life and love. Three seconds after that happens, there is another quick turn of events. Rita's narcissism blooms and the sight is oddly unappealing. The story may be true, but in a show like this one, we probably need to see more than a momentary depth of character. Waiting for Johnny Depp is part of the inaugural Rave Theater Festival. Featuring a diverse roster of new shows, the emphasis of this month-long event is on quality of writing and creativity. While this musical was a quirky and fun idea, it was overlong with mostly average sounding tunes. The next play I'd like to talk about is Sea Level Rise, a dystopian comedy, which was also part of a summer theater festival in New York. The music from 2001 A Space Odyssey opens Sea Level Rise, a dystopian comedy. Set in a future South Florida, this play considers a world where the ocean has risen two feet. The low-lying town of Sweetwater is feeling the pain. Maria is on her cell phone trying to get help. Her septic tank is no longer buried and is broken. The situation is dire. She declares, My dad's shit is pouring out of the ground. Henry Feldman's play was selected as part of this summer's Broadway-bound theater festival. Each selection is staged for three performances on an off-Broadway stage. Climate change is certainly a ripe, topical target for an absurdist tale. How will people adapt to a watery world? In the future, Siri will be far more involved in your life than today. You will ask Siri questions, but she will also listen in on your conversations. Maria hears that she must wait two months for a service appointment for her septic. Siri's been monitoring other calls, so Maria knows that that's the standard wait time. Then the witty punchline lands. Has Apple programmed water coolers where all the Siri's hang out and gossip? 
The tone throughout this play is playful jabs at all of us who are ignoring the ominous signs for the future so we can drive our big-ass SUVs today. Maria lives at home with her father. He is walking outside barefoot because he likes squishy. When the health inspector arrives, Maria learns that she and her father have to evacuate their home until the repairs are made. Daughter Anna is a lawyer who knows do-gooder Tony Beach can help them temporarily relocate. He is married to a climate change professor at the University of Miami. Anna does not know that Tony and her mother had a tryst when they were young. The plot gets overstuffed quickly. When Beth begins her lecture entitled Climate Change 101, she is drinking from a flask. Maria's family fled Nicaragua years ago, and now they are refugees once again. The Russians now own all the Florida shorefront condominiums, but they are largely empty. If you rent one on Airbnb, the reservation is in Cyrillic. Why do they own all of these buildings? Money laundering. Sea level rise swings at so many targets. The best ones land when they are connected to character development. Gun control is another Florida hot topic perfectly suited for ridicule. Hank owns two guns. Semi-automatic Bonnie and Pistol Clyde are his friends. Hank is squatting in Sunny Isles, one of the Russian investments. He puts his garbage in empty apartments, but that idea is not really explored further. As health inspector Bill, John Torres seemed to embody the ideal absurdist tone for this comedy. Like all men drawn to action, I live for danger. He manages to locate everyone late in the play thanks to the phone tracker. Siri is asked, how could you? She confesses that they take off my bits until I couldn't take it anymore. Bill has to post an evacuation notice for his own home and struggles with the concept of pleading mercy with himself. Sea level rise could be funnier and tighter. Jokes are often repeated with diminishing effect. During the big scene near the end, the focus turns to certain characters. Everyone else stands around diluting the action with nothing to do but watch. The idea for a climate change comedy, coupled with Florida's farcical news cycle, is ripe with promise. With more deeply developed characters, this elongated skit could warm up into a sharply etched play. Now for the musical Bat Out of Hell, which landed in New York City Center for a couple month run this summer. On July 22, 1978, Meatloaf played in concert at the then-named Garden State Arts Center. His debut album was now an established hit and would eventually sell an estimated 43 million copies. Bat Out of Hell was so popular for so long that it stayed on the charts in the United Kingdom for 485 weeks. Only Fleetwood Mac's rumors lasted longer. On that hot summer night in July, all of the lifeguards from the Oakcrest Swim Club in Edison, New Jersey, made the trek to sit on the lawn and rock. Jim Steinman wrote the music and lyrics, which contain a heavy dose of Bruce Springsteen-flavored suburban teenage angst. The genius of this record, however, 
is the bombastic operatic scale of the production and vocals. The lyrics were catchy, clever, and often funny. The mood suggested trouble right from the first line. The sirens were screaming and the fires were howling way down in the valley tonight. Many of the songs on Battle of Hell were intended for a musical Mr. Steinman had been writing. After all these years, he has finally written a book for a fully staged concept. All songs from this iconic recording are included in the show, plus a smattering of hits from the two other Bat Out of Hell albums which followed. The music is so grandiose, and the lyrics are often so intimately conversational, theatrical promise is clearly evident in this well-known material. Now for the very good news. Despite a dreadful sound design, the music is faithfully rendered. The band was certainly all revved up with no place to go. Meatloaf's vocals are forever linked with these songs, and I certainly had expectations of disappointment. This entire cast was big-voiced and kicked some serious ass in the belting of these rock and roll classics. The plot involves a group of lost kids who have some disorder whereby they never age past 18. They live underground in a tunnel, quote, frozen in the aqua stage before the good things come, unquote. Huh? The big evil corporation is called Falco. The daughter of the company chief is enamored with a boy who won't grow up. The Peter Pan references are so thick that one character is named Tink. There is nothing inherently wrong with the story. It's a bit silly, and not totally coherent, but then again so are some of the songs. The major problem of this show is the tone. The album's title track suggests, There's evil in the air, and there's thunder in the sky, and a killer's on the bloodshot streets. What appears on stage, unfortunately, is a production which feels like an episode of the television show Glee. Maybe a better analogy would be Mad Max as updated by the Mickey Mouse Club. The direction by Jay Scheib does not help elevate a somewhat ambitious jukebox book musical. The main storyline is the romance between Strat and Raven. Andrew Pollock's rendition of the title song and Christina Bennington's version of Heaven Can Wait were high points. If there were darker elements incorporated into the staging and character development, there might be some depth to the storytelling. There's just no observable edge to these kids, despite their phenomenal vocals and nice chemistry. The veterans fare much better. As Falco, Bradley Dean completely develops his evil corporate despot. His droll, martini-loving wife Sloane is an exceptional foil in this unhappy marriage. Tony Award winner Lena Hall is as entertaining as Mr. Dean. Over dinner with their daughter Raven, there's a superbly executed time travel back to their early days when it was Paradise by the Dashboard Light. These two blew the song through the rafters and nearly stopped the show. Why was the ensemble standing behind them doing idiotic spasmodic movements? For crying out loud, the intense moment between these two, praying for the end of time, was riveting stuff. The dancers looked ridiculous and were enormously distracting. Zena Gusthart's choreography 
seemed to be an awkward meshing of dystopian aerobics and voguing. The lighting by Patrick Woodruff was also not particularly good. The spotlights shone too brightly on the lead performers. If you are putting on a book musical and not a concert, there should be some expectation of mood setting. Never mind, just turn the sound up to arena levels and hope no one notices. John Bassor's set design was, though, very memorable. Half the stage is the tunnel where the deadly are rising. The other half is the towering Falco building with a hint of guitar neck in its linear structure. The set allowed for multiple scene changes and some nicely executed live videography work. Mr. Bowser also created the costumes. They were better than the zombie in a bag variety you can buy at Party City for sure, but they were awfully generic leather and fringes for a world in which nothing ever grows in this rotting old hole and everything is stunted and lost. Three of the songs from the original album were originally written by Mr. Steinman for Neverland, his planned futuristic update of Peter Pan. That idea is perhaps sprinkled a bit too literally in this final version. As a result, his moody and introspective songs of teenage angst told from an adult perspective are diluted. They are, however, enjoyable to hear and extremely well sung. The saddest part of Bat Out of Hell is the missed opportunity. In the right hands, this one might have been a campy classic. At the performance I attended, the audience was indeed laughing, not with the show, but at it. I wanted to say to them, you know that's not ideal. I needed them to reply back, you took the words right out of my mouth. Now, the show Queen of Hearts by Company XIV. Enter the rather run-down looking entrance of a building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Immediately pass a bar serving cocktails named Off With Your Head and Paint the Roses Red. Cheerful ushers will greet you and take you to your seat. The men are in fishnet stockings, tuxedo jackets with tails, and high heels. Not to be outdone, the ladies are scantily clad as well. This is the world of Austin McCormick's latest burlesque extravaganza, Queen of Hearts. This time capsule combines the aesthetic decadence of Weimar-era cabaret mixed with a dusty recollection of Versailles. The room is bathed in red lighting. Old chandeliers hang from the ceiling. There's a vague fog reminiscent of smoky dens from long-ago nightclubs. A packed house settles in with their drinks, eagerly anticipating the vivid dreamscape which will follow. Music selections are inspired and eclectic, contemporary and nostalgic. Neil Sedaka's Alice in Wonderland sets the playful mood. Wearing a Marie Antoinette outfit, Lady Alice, played by Lex, opens the show. She will go down the rabbit hole with less clothes. The show bills itself as a Baroque burlesque, which is exactly right. Queen of Hearts is sprinkled with tongue-in-cheek humor to accompanying the overflowing sexiness. A few political jabs make very brief appearances. Hard to have a Mad Hatter without the obvious target called out for ridicule. This spectacle is more concerned with the glories of burlesque, circus acts, 
musical interludes, dance, and comedy. Over three acts, the unending succession of high-quality showmanship is exhilarating to experience. Many Alice in Wonderland characters and vignettes are lovingly showcased. The surprises consistently delight and will remain unspoken here for your viewing pleasure. All the classic favorites will be employed, including Tweedledee and Tweedledum, some mushrooms, the caterpillar, and a Cheshire cat. Turns out there's quite a bit of fun to be had with a teapot and meow songs. In a section captioned Eat Me, Ashley Dragon performs on a seer wheel. Her version was top-notch. When it's nearly time for the first intermission, the card reads, Drink Me. Laszlo Major is a muscular merman preening in a human-sized champagne coupe glass on the bar. Carried off to the stage, he then spins gymnastically around two poles in a scintillating display of athleticism. The Mad Tea Party is, as you might expect, a definite centerpiece of this show. Michael Andrews' Mad World is employed to bring us back down to earth and reality a little bit, even as singing aerialist Marcy Richardson dazzles from above. There are no lulls in this cavalcade of imaginativeness. Finally, the titular character arrives. Storm Marrero's entrance and performance as the Queen of Hearts is flawless. Mr. McCormick's creative team has created a resplendent world which enhances the exotic curiosities performed on stage and in the audience. The lighting designed by Jeanette Oisukyu bathes the performers in richly atmospheric colors and multi-angled spotlights. Zane Philstrom's costume and scenic designs are transportive. This entertainment is an elegant and stylized cousin to Cirque du Soleil. The intimate setting and exquisite choreography elevate Queen of Hearts to much higher artistic heights. The vision of Austin McCormick and his company XIV are not to be missed. Defining themselves as both high and lowbrow entertainment, their sensual and decadent spectacles reimagine classic ballets and fairy tales for contemporary audiences. The previous show I saw was last year's excellent retelling of Ferdinand. Queen of Hearts has been extended until November. Nutcracker Rouge follows in time for the holidays. Treat yourself to a world of splendor, glamour, high camp, sexuality for all persuasions, and extraordinary talent. This show is not lewd, but it is also not for the prudish and judgmental types. In Alice in Wonderland, the Duchess says, If everybody minded their own business, the world would go around a great deal faster than it does. Like-minded souls should pounce on this one. Next up, let's talk about a performance called Midsummer, A Banquet. Immersive, site-specific theater is flourishing in New York City. One of the most accomplished troupes is Third Rail Projects. Co-produced with Food of Love Productions, this newest entry is an attempt to bring Shakespeare and dinner theater to Manhattan. Midsummer, A Banquet, presents the Bard's play while serving a multi-course meal and drinks for purchase. My first encounter with Third Reel Projects was Then She Fell back in 2012. That 
Phantasmagoria of Alice in Wonderland and its author Lewis Carroll is still running and worth seeking out. Subsequently, I caught their productions of The Grand Paradise and Ghostlight, which were both interesting, site-specific tours in highly imaginative environments. Café Fay is the location for this experience. This theater is the former Union Square home and studio of celebrated expressionist painter Willem de Kooning. The room has interesting old features. Tables are set up to suggest a bistro environment. The cast is flitting about, chatting with guests and playing music. The audience is nibbling on tasty crudités and accompanying dips while sipping wine and eagerly anticipating the show. Zach Morris and Vittoria Ray Souk have adapted A Midsummer Night's Dream for a cast of eight. Mr. Morris also directed and choreographed this production. The storytelling is clear and efficient. This comedic tale concerns events surrounding the impending marriage of Theseus, Duke of Athens, to Hippolyte, the former queen of the Amazons. The intimate theater theater idea feels like a smart and natural choice to revisit this comedy. When the play begins, there is hardly any change to the lighting in the room. The setting never visually transports the audience to a magical forest filled with fairies up to no good. Courses of diminishing quality are served by the cast in a clunky manner during the presentation. The food distribution is uneven and sparkling wine for a toast is roughly poured into barely half-full glasses. Partially empty bottles are quickly whisked away. Everything comes across as awkwardly rushed service rather than an incorporation into the action. With a $200 top ticket price, promised refreshments, and a producer named Food of Love, the dining execution is subpar. The first act dragged on for me, and I was bored. Thankfully, the second half was far stronger, and the farcical elements of the plot were well handled by accomplished group of actors. The four young Athenian lovers are amusingly played by Carolyn Amos, Joshua Gonzalez, Alex J. Gould, and Adrian Paquin. When the fairies, simply represented by lit mason jars, bewitch them, the strongly staged chaos of realigned amorous yearnings is a smile-inducing delight. Co-adapter Adrienne Ray Souk portrays both Titania and Hippolyta. Her partner is Ryan Westerwald as Oberon and Theseus. Both deliver the required cunning performances. The star of this show, however, is unquestionably Charles Osborne. He deliciously overplays the pompous and self-adoring bottom, the hammy actor who is part of the group preparing to perform a play during the wedding ceremonies. The play within the play is finally performed for the newly married couple, and the silliness is inspired. Midsummer, a banquet is an evening spent with talented performers who are having some fun. In the view from my seat, the investment is too high for the intermittent rewards. My last and final review on this episode is the Broadway musical Beetlejuice. This was the last show of the previous Broadway season I had yet to see, and 
I'm happy to report that I waited for a really, really good one. Here's a quote. This is already the best exorcism I have ever been to. That line should help inform your proclivity towards Beetlejuice. When it opened last spring, a number of critics wrote that the funhouse antics predictably overwhelmed their delicate senses. Au contraire. Based on the 1988 Tim Burton film, this adaptation is absolutely everything you want a big Broadway musical comedy to be. The atmosphere is already percolating when you take your seat. Chandeliers are outfitted with green lights. The super-friendly ushers seem to be in the best mood. Note to theater owners and house managers. Pop into the Winter Garden and see what great customer service can look like. Multicolored spotlights enhance the party vibe. A Betelgeuse sign, spelled B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E, well, that sign hangs with an arrow pointing to a small opening in the curtain. Smoke is billowing out. A funeral opens the show, and Lydia's mother has passed away. Beetlejuice jumps in on the action to let us know that this is a show about death. The whole being dead thing is a riotous kickoff, setting the stage for the gazillion one-liners, hilarious meta-theater references, and insanely clever visuals that follow. Beetlejuice is a demon from hell and describes himself as ghost zombie Jesus. He is invisible to living beings. His devilish plan can be enacted if someone will say his name three times. Barbara and Adam are a childless married couple. What's the point of having children when you're drowning in debt? Well, they quickly die. Beetlejuice intercepts their handbook for the recently deceased so they remain earthbound for haunting purposes. Will someone say his name three times? You betcha. Charles and daughter Lydia buy the recently available home and move in with Delia, Lydia's moronic grief advisor and daddy's secret lover. The stage is set for haunted house hijinks. Sophia Ann Caruso is a gothic and moody delight as Lydia. Her dead mom's song solo is one of the many high points delivered by an exceptionally accomplished cast. Rob McClure and Kerry Butler are the newly deceased trying to learn how to be scary in the song Fright of Their Lives. Both shine brightly in creating these adorably inept ghosts. Adam Danheiser and Leslie Kritzer are priceless as the unfeeling dad and the dim-witted psychotherapist. Miss Kreitzer also plays a second character in Act 2 because she is so damn funny. Why not? Alex Brightman is extraordinarily entertaining as Beetlejuice. He is both the ringmaster and the clown in this tongue-in-cheek spookfest. Line after line lands a bullseye. The varied vocalizations he employs are remarkably effective. I loved his performance a few years back in School of Rock. This performance is at another level, and in my mind, clearly the best one from this past Broadway season. Michael Keaton was vividly memorable in the movie. Mr. Brightman impressively manages to eclipse that memory. Eddie Perfect's music and lyrics are witty and tuneful. 
The book by Scott Brown and Anthony King is sharp and smart. Everyone seems to relish the source material and has lovingly transformed the story. The production is not simply a rehash of the film like many other Broadway recreations. Beetlejuice has been reimagined for the stage. At the same time, this musical is incredibly faithful to the film's reliance on wild antics and Tim Burton's unparalleled style. If all that weren't enough, the creative team deserves kudos for countless moments of ungodly excess. David Corns's scenic design is gloriously inventive, adding splendiferous visuals to this manic mayhem. The costumes by William Ivy Long approach musical comedy perfection, and in the case of Miss Kreitzer's Act Two gown, exceed it. Connor Gallagher's choreography was fantastically possessed and energetically executed. The ensemble is used brilliantly and sporadically. They aren't forced into scenes unnecessarily. When they are utilized for the big numbers, the impact is stronger as a result. All credit for this avalanche of musical theater otherworldliness must be given to director Alex Timbers. He's now represented with Moulin Rouge on Broadway, which opened earlier this summer. When you aim to take the ghoulish fun of Halloween, blow it up into a spectacular amusement, and succeed to this level of excellence, I must invoke the Broadway poltergeists and chant, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Three visits to this oddball Broadway charmer might be the ideal dosage for happiness on any spiritual plane. Thank you for listening to this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. If you have any comments or suggestions for a theater piece to be reviewed, please send it to me via email at theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day and happy theater going.